So have you ever hit your funny bone? Ever hit your funny bone? You know, it's hit that little spot right there on the inside of your elbow, you know, and, and when you hit it, it makes you feel anything but funny, you know? It's not really funny. Well, our medical professionals could tell us today that your funny bone is not actually a bone. It is a nerve. The funny bone is not something that's an actual bone. It's a nerve. The ulnar nerve, it, it runs right down here in your arm. And what happens is that nerve actually rubs up against the humerus bone. I'm not making this up. And when those two things bump up against one another, that nerve sends a message to your brain that says, or something along those lines. The reality is, is this bone is not a bone, it is a nerve. So, if you need something to amaze your family and friends at your next pig picking, then give them this riddle. Hey, what's the only bone in your body that you can't break? The funny bone, because it's not a bone. It won't work, but, you know, you'll laugh. It'll be fun for you. Your backbone, though, is not a nerve. Your backbone is actually a bone. Well, not one bone, it's a lot of little bones. And those little bones line up and they protect a, a mass of nerve tissue called the spinal cord. The brain and the spinal cord make up the central nervous system of your body. Central meaning that everything about your body, all the influence, all the control happens through this system. And so the backbone is not something that is funny. There is something tremendously important about the backbone. The backbone is protecting the part of your body that makes you who you are, that makes you do what you do. This past week, journalist Elaine Cliff wrote an article. The title of her article was, Nurses, the Heart and Backbone of Healthcare. Now, we know that nurses aren't actual little pieces of bone lined up protecting our healthcare system. So what does it mean to say that they are the backbone? Well, Cliff in her article notes that nurses have been making a powerful and significant impact on the practice and the policy of healthcare for more than 160 years. In other words, what she means by that is this, that nurses are behind the scenes doing the heart and soul work of what healthcare is all about. I'm no fool. I married a surgical nurse. I understand how this works. So let's move a little bit from medical, a little bit from the physiological, from the metaphorical, and let's go to the spiritual. What is working behind the scenes in your life? What is it that is the heart and soul of who you are? What's driving your attitude? What's driving the way that you make decisions in life? When you come to these major decisions in life, when you come to these minor decisions in life, what is it that's driving the way you make those decisions? Maybe put another way, what is the backbone of your life? What is the backbone of your life? The Apostle Paul was writing to his friend Titus. He's writing to Titus and he's wanting to help Titus and some of the other folks that are with Titus. He's wanting to help them develop some backbone for their individual lives, but also for their churches. Well, why do they need so much backbone? Well, they needed some backbone because the culture that they lived in was full of self-centeredness and lies and greed and immorality. You know, the kind of stuff that we don't have anymore in our culture and society, right? Now, the reality is they needed some backbone for the world that they lived in. 
And so Paul's going to give them some backbone. He's going to give them some advice. So why should we listen to his advice? What does it have to do with us? Well, let's find out. Titus chapter 1, verse 5. Paul writes, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Titus was the kind of guy you could count on. He was the kind of guy you could give something to, and he would take care of it, and it would be taken care of well. So Paul leaves him on this island of Crete for the very purpose of doing some temp work. See, the plan was not for Titus to retire on the beautiful beaches of this Greek island. He was just there to set some things in order, and then he was going to move on. The word and the language here for setting things in order is the same kind of language we would use for, for setting a bone that had been broken. So what was broken with these Christians? What was broken in this early church? Well, they had heard the gospel. They had responded to the gospel. But the gospel was not the backbone of their life. Sound familiar? I think the hardest part of being a Christian, the, the hardest part of following Jesus is the reality that our, our faith is not something that's just a, a one-time thing. Our faith is something that's supposed to be lived out all the time. There's not a time where our faith in Jesus is not supposed to be real. We have convinced ourselves oftentimes that, you know, 30, maybe 40 Sundays a year, that's enough. Maybe an occasional morning devotion, that, that'll be enough, but it's really not. We look at our lives and sometimes how we act at home and how we act at work and how we act at school, and it, and it seems like what we're saying is that Jesus is not something we have to do all the time if you look at how we speak and act and talk and think. Sometimes when you look at the way that we plan our calendars, the way we use our free time. Sometimes we, we see this picture that, that undoubtedly Jesus and the gospel is just a Sunday morning activity only and he doesn't really have a place in the rest of our week. So what happens if we start living like that? What happens if we start compartmentalizing the gospel? What happens when the gospel doesn't get into our marriage and it doesn't get into our families? And it doesn't get into the way we act at work and school and all these other places. What if the gospel never makes it into our friendships or anything else that we do? Well, what happens is around our life, there is more self-centeredness. There is more lies. There's, there's more greed. And there's more immorality. And the reason why is because all we're doing is adding to the system. You see, we're not following Jesus in the way that he's called us to, so we're not really impacting things at home. We're not impacting things in our community. We're just adding to it because we left Jesus down at the campus on Sunday morning. I met somebody once who was fighting angry about keeping prayer in schools, and yet they were pretty open and honest that they did not pray with their own family and could not see the hypocrisy you know, of the two things. You see, the reality is we live in a world that is always going to be full of sin and lies and self-centeredness and greed and immorality. It's, it's always going to be like that until Jesus returns. And so we should not expect lost people to act like Christians, but we should expect Christians to act like Christians. You see, the gospel is not just something for your Sunday school class. The gospel's not just something that we sing about in this room. The gospel isn't, even, is not just about my sermon that I preach. The gospel is something that's supposed to be a part of all that we are. See, the gospel is supposed to be seen in our marriages and our families. 
The gospel is supposed to be seen in our attitudes at work and at school. The gospel is supposed to be seen in our attitudes in the restaurants and at the ballpark. The gospel is supposed to be seen in, in the way that we vote and the way that we carry ourselves at a church committee meeting. See, there's not a place where our relationship with Jesus Christ is not supposed to be real. In other words, there's never a time that we're not supposed to always be marinating on the gospel. The gospel is supposed to be a part of all that we are. Our faith in Jesus is all the time, not just a little bit. So what does that look like? We've looked at this verse a lot. I, I really never get sick of it. This is what Jesus said in Luke 9, 23. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Deny self. Die to self. What does that mean? What does it mean to, to die to yourself? I love this definition. It means to renounce anything that challenges or trumps our allegiance to the kingdom of God. We are to renounce our yearning to possess things. We are to renounce our desire for power. We are to renounce the favor of men if it cost us loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to renounce human glory if it vies with or diminishes the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. In short, we are to seek first the kingdom. So, is there anything in your life this morning you need to renounce? Is there anything in your life that is more famous than Jesus Christ? As believers, the most famous person in our life, the most famous thing, the most famous thought is supposed to be our salvation in Jesus. So is there something competing with the fame of Jesus in your life? And is that something actually you? Are your opinions and your desires and what you want actually more important than the gospel of Jesus Christ? Really, let's just look back on this past week. Each one of us, think through how we functioned this past week. Was Jesus primary? Was Jesus the priority? Was honoring Jesus and Him being famous the most important thing in how we functioned this past week? As believers, that's what Jesus has called us to do. The call to follow after Jesus is not just a call to be moral. It's not just a call to work hard at your jobs or at school. It's not a call just to go to church. The call to follow Jesus is something that we are denying ourselves in such a way that we believe in Jesus in a way that says, Jesus, you have sway over every aspect of my life. Maybe put another way, to follow after Jesus Christ, to deny yourself, means that Jesus Christ is the ruler and main influencer over your culture. What is your culture. Well, somebody said if you put this in southern language, it'd be like this. It's how things work around here. That's what your culture is. How things work around here. How do things work around your life? How do things work around your home? How do things work around who you are? Is Jesus the primary influencer and motivator and ruler over the culture of your life, or is there something else? Someone sent me an article this week, a really interesting article about culture in the church. Just want to share a smattering of things that I got from this article. I, I think it will be challenging for us, not just in church, but also as individuals in our marriages and with our families. Michael Lukaszewski says this, Culture is why some companies can have remote employees and others have to use a time clock. Culture is the reason some churches seem to have more than enough volunteers and others can't find any. 
So the idea here is that, that culture is the, the driving part of the attitude of a person. It's what drives a person to do what they do or drive a group of people to do what they do. So what is driving you? What is the primary culture of your life? Sam Chan says this, culture trumps vision every time. We could have the greatest vision in the world, the greatest plan, the greatest system, the greatest mission. But unless your yes is on the table, or unless we as believers have a here I am, Lord, whatever you want attitude, then that vision, that plan, that mission, that system is nothing more than a stapled policy or really fancy PowerPoint display. You see, there has to be a yes. There has to be a culture behind the vision, a culture behind the plan. Lukaszewski points to Tony Dungy is a great example of this. Dungy used to be a head football coach in the NFL. In 1996, he became the head football coach of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. He walked into a culture that was defined by losing. And so the first thing he did was to give his team the excuses for why they were probably and maybe going to lose. <laughs> the excuses for losing. Okay, These are what they were. We have a new coaching staff. We have to learn a new system on both offense and defense. We have subpar facilities. We have a young quarterback. We never get the benefit of the doubt from officials. We have distractions over a stadium, and we might move cities, and we never win in the cold. Those are pretty legitimate excuses for why you know, they might lose. But see, he wanted the culture to change. He wanted to go from a, a losing culture to a winning culture. So he took away the excuses, and he gave them some expectations. These were the expectations. Be a pro. Act like a champion. Respond to adversity. Don't react to it. Be on time. Being late means it's not important to you or that you can't be relied upon. Do what you're supposed to do when you're supposed to do it. Not almost, but all the way. Not most of the time, but all of the time. And then lastly, take ownership. So what happened when they moved from excuses to expectations? Well, the next season, they had their first winning season in 15 years. And they won only the second playoff game in the history of the franchise since 1976. You see, there was a, a culture shift. Things had changed. The attitude, the driving behavior was different. Lukaszewski also gives some culture shifts for the church, some things that probably almost every church needs to be considering. We're going to do these fast. I shortened them really, really low from what he said. Number one, from us to them. When you create a culture that's welcoming to outsiders, they will take notice. People gravitate to places where they're accepted. They don't need to agree or understand it to want it. Wow, a great thought. Our love for Jesus, they don't have to understand it. They just, they see it. They know it's there. Culture shift two, from hiring staff to empowering leaders. Many churches suffer from a culture where the paid staff is expected to do all the ministry work. Not only is this not the picture from the New Testament, it's terribly ineffective. Build a culture where it's normal for everybody to serve and for some to lead. Culture shift number three, create a culture where it's normal to contribute, not just attend. 
I may be messing up 99.9% of what I'm doing with my kids, but I do think we have tried to help our kids see that serving is good for you. So I just put a few things here together. Serving creates relationships. Serving strengthens relationships. Serving is fun and interesting. Serving involves preparation. And serving is good for your soul. Just good for your soul. Serving people and serving with people, it's good for your soul. If you want your life to get better, then find ways to serve in and with others in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Number four, from programs to purpose. Eating right and exercising on a regular basis makes us healthy, not fad diets and supplements. Ministries over time lead to change. All the ministries in your church are good, but check on them often. Some may have lost their effectiveness years ago. And then one more, from blame to resolve. If you want to change the culture in your church, or for that matter, I would say this, if you want to change the culture in your marriage this morning, if you want to change the culture with your parents this morning, if you want to change the culture at work and at school and, and in every other relationship that you have, this is good advice. Start with yourself. Don't blame everybody else. Be asking, what can I do to be better? Now, in a sense, these things in the church all start with, with me, in a sense. You know, that, that I'm the, the culture leader here. I'm supposed to be encouraging some culture. But you know, it's not just me. It starts with me and works its way out, but it also starts with you and works its way out. You see, every person in this church influences the culture of our church. Just like every person in your home influences the culture in your home. Everybody at work, everybody at school, in every area of your life, every single person there is an influence. In other words, all of us are building influence. We are building influence. So the question is, what is it that you're building? What are you building around your life? What are you building in your marriage? What are you building in your home and in the other places of where you are? Maybe put another way, how do things work around you? How do things work around your home? How do things work around our church? Do they work around Jesus? Do they work around the gospel? Or do they work around something else? Is there another influence? Think back just through this past week. Are you demanding grace from somebody but refusing to give that person grace? Are you demanding to have your way in something right now, but yet you, you know, get mad and angry and pitch a fit if somebody has the audacity to demand their way when you're trying to demand your way? If so, that's not how things work around the gospel. This is how things work around the gospel. Again, these words from Jesus. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Deny self, die to self. Why should you do that? What's the motivation for you to deny self? This is what Paul said to the folks at Galatia. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. This is how we just sang it a few moments ago. In Christ alone who took on flesh, fullness of God, and helpless babe. This gift of love and righteousness scorned by the ones he came to save. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Every sin of all of us in this room, every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. Here in the love of Christ I stand. Jesus loved you and gave himself up for you. Jesus loved, Jesus loves, and Jesus will love forever and ever and ever. 
If you're looking for a great sentence to wake up to in the morning, if you're looking for a great sentence to to drift off to sleep with at night, it's this sentence, Jesus loves you and he gave himself up for you. There's no greater sentence that we could keep in our minds than that. Paul's writing to Titus. He needs to set some things in order. Why? Because it was a wild, immoral culture around him. And so what does he tell him to set in order? What's his counsel? Look back at verse 5. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Uh Uh-oh. Bless Paul's heart. A little temporary amnesia here. (laughs) He totally forgot what he was talking about. What in the world? He's, He's talking to Titus about how to live a Christian life in the middle of an immoral culture, and he says something about church leaders. Well, that can't be right, right? And what in the world do church leaders have to do with us being good Christians in an immoral world? Well, actually, it has everything to do with it. Jesus had been crucified. He had already risen from the dead, and he had ascended to heaven. And so now what's left are these new Christians and these new Christian leaders, and they're starting this thing called the church. And this thing called the church was growing. There was a lot of great things happening. But there was a problem. They needed some folks to step up and serve, to step up and help out. And here's the scene, Acts chapter 6. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. So the lead pastor, the lead servant, so to speak, they, they needed some help with a particular area of service. And so they turned to the disciples who were leading the ministry and they said, we need for you to pick a few folks to help with this specific area. Now, don't miss the scene of what's happening here. So you have the lead pastors that were committing themselves to the teaching and the ministry of the Word and to prayer. And then you have these other guys who are full of the Spirit and wisdom. Okay? So what's happening? Every single person in this scene is following Jesus. (laughs) They were already following Jesus. They didn't have to get up and and give a personal testimony and say, well, I've also been to seminary too. Well, I've also been a member of the church for at least 12 months. No, that's not what's happening here. When it came time to look for leaders, everybody stopped and went, you know what? This is obvious. We don't have to figure out which one of these guys are following Jesus. We see it in their lives. They are committed to Jesus. The culture of their lives is Jesus. The way things work around these guys, it works around Jesus. Jesus. Our faith is not something that's just for Sunday morning. Our faith is for all the time. The only way the church can be pursuing Jesus is if all of us are pursuing Jesus. And the only way we can pursue Jesus is if the pastor and the other pastors and the elders and the staff and the deacons and the Sunday school teachers and the nursery workers, if all of us are actually pursuing Jesus together instead of pursuing self. Denying self and making a big deal out of Jesus. That's how God designed the church to work. For all of us to be in this together. You see, the culture around the church leaders is supposed to be Jesus. And the culture around the church members is supposed to be Jesus. And graduates, the culture around your life is supposed to be Jesus. 
It's no different for you than it is for any of the rest of us. Paul's writing a letter to his friend Titus. He's telling them, look, the foundation's been laid, but you need to build something on top of that. If I were writing a letter to you, I would say the exact same thing. You have years of foundation that has been laid, but now is your time to build. You are holding the hammer and the nails in ways that you have never held the hammer and nails before. And that really kind of starts today and in the next few weeks. You know, about five, six years ago when I was your age, I was not really ready, you know, for, uh, for college, not really ready for the real world, so to speak. Uh, I was a good kid. I made decent grades. I was heavily involved in the church. I had a good after-school job. I was involved with a lot of extracurricular activities, but I was not ready for the next step. But I was at college. Now, I loved college. I just didn't understand the whole part about going to class and studying. That was the part that was kind of confusing to me about college. But you know what rescued me and saved me from making a mess out of my life? My parents, some friends, a really nice and sincerely threatening letter from the university. Those things all helped. (laughs) But you know what helped the most was the gospel. You see, I knew that I had not just prayed a prayer, got baptized, and joined the church. Anybody can do that. I knew that the one true God of the universe had brought me from dead to alive. And when I was 17 years old, the gospel is what grabbed me again and said, this is what life is all about. And I have made a ton of mistakes since then, and I will make a ton of mistakes for the rest of my life. But one thing I do know is this. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. I once was dead, but now I'm alive. I could have been an honor student. (laughs) My mom would laugh that I just said that. Um, I could have been an honor student, though. I could have. You never know. Uh, I could have been president of the student body. I could have gotten a PhD. I could have snagged the best job with the best benefits right out of school. But without Jesus Christ and without the gospel, I would be a well-educated, respected, financially stable zombie. Because I'd be a walking dead man without Jesus. This morning, we want to encourage you. We, we want you to see that, that this information is not just information. We want you to know that because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you can actually have a backbone that will protect your soul. That today, a knowledge and a relationship with Jesus Christ gives you all the peace, all the hope, all the truth, all the love you need for every single thing that the culture will throw at you. Same is true for us as well. If we have one hope for you as you step into this next stage of life, it would be what we sang earlier that you would stand in the love of Christ. Because at the end of the day, ladies, there is absolutely nowhere else to stand. In fact, standing in the love of Christ is the best place. Let's pray.